Welcome to the first episode in our new podcast series, In Beta. I'm Charles Bradley, GPD's Executive Director, and I'm going to be hosting the series. But first, let me explain what the series is and what we're trying to do with it. The idea behind it is pretty simple. The digital policy and human rights space has a lot of interesting people working in it, rich with ideas and perspectives they could be sharing with the world. But this isn't happening, or at least not enough. As a community, we produce a lot of research policy papers, organise conferences, set up working groups, etc. Now, these are all important things, of course, but often they're formal and highly specialised. What we don't have is informal spaces or channels where we can debate the big questions about the future of the field. Questions that cut across policy silos that might not have specific answers. Sometimes these are provocative. Sometimes they're hard to address. How is technology changing the way we think about human rights? What forms of civil society organisation will be effective in the age of AI and the Internet of Things? And does the human rights model have a future? These are the kinds of questions we'll be looking at in each episode. In a nutshell, we want this series to be a place for interesting conversations with interesting people. We've called it in beta because these discussions are intended to be experimental, informal and speculative. They might not resolve a question. Maybe they're only notes or sketches towards something. They might even bring up new questions that we haven't thought of before. But maybe something more substantial will come out of them. Who knows? As with all of our work at GPD, we're open to suggestions. If you have a question you want to see discussed, we have something to say about an episode that we've already aired, get in touch with us on Twitter or drop me an email at charles at gp-digital.org. In this first episode, I'm going to be talking to Stefan Verhost, who's the co-founder and chief research and development officer at the Governance Laboratory at NYU, an action research center dedicated to improving governance through advances in technology. He's also a member of GPD's advisory board. Stefan, welcome. Today, we'll be asking the question, is policymaking stuck in the 19th century? Trust in governance and policy processes is at an all-time low. Last month, we of course saw the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, which is often criticised as a closed event for the establishment, not known for its innovative approaches to policy. So this question feels quite timely. Stefan, let me hand over to you. What's your perspective on how we currently make policies relating to the digital environment? Great. Well, thanks, Charles, for having me and uh, delighted to be part of this, uh, this podcast. And obviously, it's a large question to answer. But um, um, clearly, if we look at um, how policies are made in a digital uh, environment or with regard to the digital environment, we can clearly see that there are a variety of deficits that uh, um, are currently present when it comes to governance, digital governance, internet governance. Uh, the first uh, deficit that we see is a legitimacy deficit. Uh, I mean, there is a sense that those who are affected by the policies that are being developed as it relates to the internet are not part of the process. So uh, a fundamental principle, of course, of democratic governance is that those who are affected will be part. And there is a sense that much of the um, uh, policy making is done either behind closed doors or at global venues where it's expensive to uh, uh, take part, or in a variety of arcane kind of contexts where it's very hard if you're not part of the in-crowd to take part. The other kind of deficits that we see is not only a legitimate uh, legitimacy deficit, we also see clearly a de deficit with regard to the effectiveness of actually then um, um, having policies that make a difference. And that quite often is also related with not only then uh, a deficit with regard to the expertise, um, where which uh, quite often resides in other places but 
um, governments or um, even uh, um, international organizations, uh, but also a deficit uh, with regard to agility. So we see that we are less effective because A, we cannot tap in the expertise necessary, but we're also less effective because by the time you have a policy that relates to a specific kind of uh, uh, digital and internet uh, phenomenon, um, uh, it may be too late. And so this agility uh, deficit together with an expertise deficit clearly makes, uh, makes it hard to be impactful. Uh, and on top of that, as I already indicated, uh, we also see, of course, that uh, there is a lack of legitimacy. Now, I can go on and also add other deficits, such as budget deficit, because everyone ultimately has to do more with less. Uh, but I think that's sufficient to make an, a first diagnostic of a broad field, which is this uh, uh, policy making. Um, and um, uh, what I would argue for is that we can actually deal with some of those deficits in more innovative ways. Uh, um, uh, because part of the deficits that we have is uh, a design challenge. It's a, a challenge of how do you design the way you go about this. And uh, to come back to your introduction, much of the design of existing policymaking venues or policymaking processes uh, do reflect what was relevant in the 19th century. Uh, but the world has moved on, has become more complex, has become more dynamic, and as a result, we see the emergence of those deficits because the design of the policy-making uh, venues have not kept up with the, uh, um, the complexity and the uh, dynamic nature of the, um, uh, the subject at hand. Absolutely. I think that's, that's really important to sort of, uh, uh, think about that and address that. I think what we're so good at in our space is sort of addressing the problems, identifying the problems, sorry. Um, but really sort of when we get to, well, what does the future look like? What does this next stage um, 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 look like? We, we sometimes sort of fall short. And I know that's been a lot of what you've been thinking about and what sort of NYU's GovLab um, is, is, is about. So what would more up-to-date processes um, look like what 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 are, what are the characteristics or what are the sort of the ideals that you would like to see in the, in these processes going forward? Well, there are again, it's a large question, and, of uh, um, um, but just to um, uh, list a few that um, um, one can uh, uh, act upon immediately. Uh, the first first uh, um, observation, I guess, as it relates to the current um, uh, way the internet is governed or the current way digital policy is made, is that it is actually um, ignoring some of the features uh, of the internet um, that can be used to govern the internet better. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I would specifically, I mean, of course there are various, but I would specifically focus on two important features. One is that the internet does gives us far more data than we've ever had. Uh, especially the data trail, but also, of course, the collection capacity um, um, to identify uh, specific uh, societal uh, uh, behaviors and patterns uh, have radically uh, transformed uh, the way we understand society, has radically transformed the amount of data available, and has radically transformed our um, possibility to experiment and learn from what works, what does not work. So my first um, um, observation is that 
uh, internet policymaking or digital policymaking has to become more data-driven and evidence-based, and that that is now feasible uh, as a result of actually the internet itself. So how do we tap into the data to really understand what is happening as it relates to certain kinds of internet uh, developments, whether that is, for instance, how are people using the internet, why are they not connected, uh, what are the challenges uh, with regard to uh, certain kinds of content misuse uh, uh, um, can all be uh, better understood uh, if we would actually start using the data that is available as a result of the internet. So that's one uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, intervention that we can do is to become more data driven. We can also become more experimental, like uh, meaning we are still stuck in the era where after many years we come up with a policy and then let's hope the policy works, right? And as I already indicated, uh, uh, given the agility of most of those fora, um, um, most of the policies are uh, policies about past events and problems as opposed to future ones. So if we would say, let's do a more experimental approach uh, and would allow also for my, more diversity as opposed to one global policy that would solve it all, then we would be able to apply uh, an, 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 inter an intervention, test, because we now have the capabilities to actually collect the data, does it work, does it not work, uh, either through sensors or through some kind of crowdsourcing kind of uh, uh, data collection, um, we would be able to test immediately whether there makes a, a difference. And so we would have not just one policy, we would have an iterative make, way of making policies that can then iterate based upon what we learn. And we would be able to do control groups. So we would be able to do more randomized kind of control in real time as opposed to uh, what is currently quite often happening in the evidence-based environment where you have randomized controls. Unfortunately, it takes five, six years. And, and as a result, again, uh, the evidence might be there, uh, but it's a bit of a waste that you suddenly have found evidence that your policy that you've been applying the last 10 years doesn't work, right? So how can you do this more agile? And again, the, um, um, the um, uh, internet allows us to do that. The other, um, uh, <laughs> uh, the other um, feature of the internet that um, um, can be used is around collaboration and co-creation. Uh, and uh, combined with identification of expertise uh, through expert technologies uh, makes it extra powerful. So um, collaboration, co-creation is not new. We've seen a lot of uh, efforts around open innovation. We've seen a lot of efforts around crowdsourcing. Uh, Wikipedia is, uh, of course, the best example where you tap into the so-called cognitive surplus of society to create a resource. We can use that uh, still for uh, policymaking uh, in a variety of ways. For instance, we can use it to actually develop a platform to map what is already happening in the space, right? I mean, it's kind of sometimes shocking that uh, it's actually very hard to know who is do well, to know what is already happening around digital policymaking. And so developing a crowdsourced map just to take stock of what is happening, who is working in the space, making it transparent of where decisions are made uh, can be done uh, in a crowdsourced uh, manner. And this is something that uh, um, GPD 
uh, and the GovLab has worked on in the past around the NetMundial Solutions Map, which was an effort to use the internet to actually become smarter about internet policy. But we can also co-create solutions, so new platforms to actually, uh, as opposed to writing laws and writing policies in closed uh, environments, uh, in exotic uh, places where the internet uh, uh, policy community uh, happens to meet, you can actually do a co-creation of policies online. Uh, uh, you can do it in, by using annotation uh, tools so that you have a text and then different parties can actually annotate and don't have to spend all their money on travel, for instance, but could actually spend their money on investigating what the real issues and solutions might be and then have a co-creation platform to actually co-create and uh, the, the uh, policy. I mean, we have a lot of um, initiatives at GovLab around what we call crowd law, how you can actually use the crowd to draft laws uh, in a more legitimate manner. And it would become more legitimate, but you also would become uh, quite often more effective because you would be able to harness the expertise as opposed to rely on, for instance, one staffer uh, of a legislator, you would be able to rely on the expertise of many more. Now, if you combine that with um, the um, expert networking, then suddenly you're not crowdsourcing widely, right, which is the examples that I have given, but you also start crowdsourcing wisely. And so, uh, by which we mean is that if you would be able to identify who knows what and how do you connect that supply side in a far more agile manner with a demand side, then suddenly you have a whole different way of engagement around expertise, uh, broadly defined, that could be expertise around a subject, could be legal expertise, but could also be expertise around experience, like I, I live there, uh, which is quite often an expertise lacking uh, during internet policymaking environments where there is policymaking or there is a debate about how do we get those people online, but no one is uh, present when... Uh, um, no one from the potential beneficiaries are present when the discussion is taking place. So you could actually ex be able to identify who, where do those be potential beneficiaries live, reach out through a variety of means in a new kind of fashion, and um, and see it as a supply side of uh, policy making. And so that requires some kind of a infrastructure of identification, some kind of an infrastructure of then validation if necessary. But um, all those things can be done. And basically, again, I'm going to stop here because I could go on and on. But, but these are just a few examples that we can do today uh, and that would radically innovate the way we go about making uh, uh, policies and would, uh, surprise, surprise, deal with some of the deficits that I raised at the beginning of, uh, of this podcast, uh, which is around legitimacy because you would have more people taking part would be more transparent uh, and it would also be more agile and uh, uh, hopefully effective. Thank you so much. There's some really uh, concrete and fantastic examples um, that, that we've seen you, through your work and, and, and through others, and we often sort of um, are grappling with internally of how we can apply these these methodologies to our work and, and working with, with groups um, in this space. Um, and you talked about what we can do today, but sort of technology is moving so fast at the moment, um, and, and we're seeing lots of new technologies and new processes that are being made and, 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 and developed, which 
um, could potentially challenge some of the solutions that you're, you've, you've just put forward, that if we get to a space where we have um, sort of algorithmic decision-making and AI, um, do we come back to technology being an actually um, an inhibitor or, or a decreaser of legitimacy and right. transparency and openness? And I wonder whether you've sort of been thinking through or sort of grappling with some of those questions as we move forward into yes. that space. Yes, um, and, and clearly the, um, um, the whole space of uh, algorithmic uh, decision-making or uh, in some cases algorithmic uh, prediction uh, uh, is um, interesting, um, on some occasions promising, because it does uh, allow you for making far more uh, informed and agile decisions, but also at the same time um, uh, disturbing, uh, because it does um, allow for perhaps less accountable uh, decision-making, because quite often it's unclear how certain kinds of algorithms actually work, uh, and uh, quite often there is a certain inherent bias uh, within the uh, uh, the model. And so towards that end, we do need to have some... Um, we don't need to throw the baby away with the, the, the bathwater. So I'm not uh, advocating that we should not experiment with uh, uh, using algorithms for decision-making and prediction. Uh, but we do need to have a certain level of scrutiny that uh, allows us to um, be more legitimate and... Uh, and uh, have AI inform IE, i.e. meaning have some kind of an informed kind of uh, uh, um, uh, audience that uh, that can that 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 can use AI as a complement to uh, um, to um, um, the way they make decisions. And so the scrutiny could be done at several levels. And so I've advocated for algorithmic scrutiny at the basic level of actually social science. I mean, most of the um, most of the algorithms are based upon some kind of a model of how real world or reality works, right? So the assumption is that if X, then Y, uh, hence Z, right? Uh, uh, now, the real challenge with those uh, models is that they're quite often based upon very um, flimsy social science uh, uh, insights. Um, and also, uh, if you generalize some of those, uh, you automatically uh, in, embed some kinds of biases. And so we need to really not have scrutiny about the models per se. We first need to have scrutiny of the social science that goes into the models. And so that, uh, for instance, if uh, uh, it says, well, if a person with a, uh, uh, which would be a discriminatory kind of uh, um, modeling, of course, if it turns out that a person with a hoodie that works uh, that walks on the sidewalk uh, uh, with his smartphone at two o'clock in the morning is likely to be a criminal. Well, that would be a troubling kind of social science uh, uh, insight, um, and so you would want to um, scrutinize that kind of uh, social science because if you use that to then make decisions, i.e., we need to uh, stop and frisk that person, uh, then uh, uh, obviously it becomes a discriminatory kind of uh, uh, implication. So social science, then we need to also have scrutiny with regard to uh, what are the decisions and the uh, rationales that went into developing the model, which are then the design kind of scrutiny uh, with regard to the model. And then ultimately also scrutiny with regard to the data, because as you, algorithms only work if you have data. And uh, uh, much of the data that we uh, quite often have uh, or that is being used is dirty, in not in uh, not 
to a certain level of um, integrity that you really would want to use it for decision making. Um, and so we need to have a, a better sense about what's the, um, the quality of the data and, and is it actually up to a certain standard for uh, using it to make decision making. And then we need scrutiny with regard to how the insights are being used. So again, this might sound like um, uh, overburning, but uh, all this can be done by just uh, uh, developing new practices and embed those decision points in some kind of a ethical framework that uh, um, would allow us to use algorithm and algorithm decision-making in a legitimate, accountable manner. Uh, and as a result, actually, we would be able to um, be better off. Absolutely. And in, these, in those discussions, where are you seeing the sort of deficit or sort of um, lack of engagement from different stakeholder groups? Like, uh, are there particular groups that you'd like to see more involved? And, and where are those discussions um, taking place? Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Um, those discussions are currently taking place in um, um, a variety of um, um, venues. Um, quite often very um, um, abstract, um, most uh, quite often, anyway, really express fears um, or express nirvana, uh, but really don't uh, go down to the, uh, the, the real details of how to go about this. Um, and so, um, again, in order to do this meaningfully, we do need to have um, a, a variety of um, actors involved. Now, again, do we need all the actors all the time? Probably not. I think we need, at the moment, when we are at the agenda setting stage, I think we need actors that are uh, expressing and representing um, uh, multiple stakeholders and uh, uh, interest groups. So that goes from um, youth organizations to um, uh, potential um, 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 other groups that might be affected uh, when uh, artificial intelligence is being used for decision making, and that could be, for instance, to anyway people that uh, um, wants to have loans, frankly, and uh, and you are either um, you're given a loan or you're uh, refused a loan based upon algorithmic kind of decision making. Well, you want to have this anyway. This community also be part of the thing. So it, it, first of all, of course, it depends on a the stage. So in the at the agenda stage, I think you want to have a full fleshed engagement uh, uh, and inclusive uh, um, discussion. It depends on the sector, right? Because again, algorithmic decision is not unique to the internet uh, uh, policy making. It is now crossing a Although it's about insurance, it's about uh, criminal justice, it's about jobs uh, and uh, uh, interview, getting an interview. So, so depending on the sector, you would probably want to have different kinds of stakeholders. Now, if we then move to an, uh, the next stage, which is then about what's the solutions, how do you come up with those decision trees, then, of course, you want to have a different kind of community. And here I would say crucial are both the policy communities but also the data science communities. I mean, and again, this is one of those, uh, as is quite often the case, uh, one of those um, situations where the two groups quite often don't talk. If they talk, they speak different vocabularies. Uh, they don't understand uh, the different kinds of rationales quite often. So we really need to do an extra effort to bring the data science community together with the policy community uh, in order to come up with this um, kind of 
um, series of approaches because there's not going to be one single bullet that can solve this. Uh, and then, of course, at the implementation stage, uh, you need to bring the judiciary, uh, you need to bring the, when it's about, anyway, uh, adjudication of some of those things, uh, you need to bring uh, uh, those who will be tasked to implement this, uh, which could be, anyway, chief privacy officers or chief data officers. So a variety uh, of um, stakeholders. And we need to still need to do, um, frankly, uh, uh, a thorough constituency mapping for this kind of environment. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, so um, that's something that perhaps GPT can do. Thanks so much, Stefan. There's a, a really good end, uh, a call to action for the right. end, of, uh, end of this podcast. So um, thanks so much. Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end um, of our first podcast in this series. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, please visit the GPD website um, and please follow GPD to hear the next installment of In Beta. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.